Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is Bob Wigley, Chair of UK Finance, the Trade Association for the Banking and Finance Sector. His career took him to the top of Merrill Lynch as its EMEA Chairman and a board role at the Bank of England, where he put his expertise into tackling the 2008 financial crash. It's an experience that also led him to be selected by the then Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, to author a report, London Winning in the Decade Ahead, looking at the opportunities for the capital to boost its reputation as a global leader. He's also a passion for backing young technology entrepreneurs. Earlier this year, he published his first book, Born Digital, The Story of a Distracted Generation. To tell us more, Bob, welcome to Changemakers. In preparation for this, one of my team asked me to describe you, and I said, I've known Bob a long time, difficult to place. One part city grandee, one part fintech fan, one part digital debate one part young entrepreneur champion. I mean, which part of that fits the bill? <laughs> I, I think my friends would say polymath and my uh, not friends would say busybody. I'm not quite sure which which it is truthfully. So, as you know, I left banking 10 years ago and after a period of spending a bit of time working in public companies, which I found you know, deeply unfulfilling because now as a director of a public company, all you seem to do is, is talk about governance and not really talk about business. Mm. Uh, and I don't want to talk about, I mean, I can do governance, but I don't want to talk about governance. I want to talk about what the business is doing. How do you help it grow You know, in, in what is, let's face it, a pretty challenging environment. So about five, six years ago, I morphed into trying to help business people grow their businesses. And uh, I call them young entrepreneurs. They're not all young. They're younger than me, mostly. So that's what I spend most of my time doing. And then one day, the phone rang. It was the chairman of Lloyd's Bank and Barclays Bank who were having lunch together. And they said, Bob, we've got a problem. We're going into Brexit. The financial services industry is facing huge, huge uh, headwinds. We don't feel we've got anybody representing us with the government regulators and the media and the public who really gets what we're facing and can help us. Mm. Would you be interested to, to chair this new organization that we're setting up, which will represent the industry, which is UK finance? I having uh, initially said no, uh, then thought about the fact that I'd had 25 years in the banking industry and I wanted to put something back. And so I now represent the banking and finance industry by chairing this thing called UK Finance, which has been a fascinating thing to do during Brexit. And And I suppose, you know, if you were to sort of take the breadcrumb trail of what gets you there, you know, you've worked on the board of the Bank of England, you've had a very distinguished career in, in financial services, but there is so much more to your story, I think, than, than than the kind of establishment figure, because you're also a disruptive figure. You've just published a brilliant new book, Born Digital, The Story of a Distracted Generation, which has got about as much to do with UK financial services as, as well, but, well, nothing to do with UK financial services in the, in the sense that I guess it takes the it takes the story right to a new generation and the challenges that it faces through digital. I mean, in terms of these kind of establishment versus disestablishment kind of like parts of your personality, which, which part do you think is the is the stronger is the stronger element? I love I love the mixture of both is the truth. So I love I love hanging around the fringes of politics and trying to influence things that I think are really important. But I also love working with entrepreneurs who, you know, I am different from them. They are what I call they have one major characteristic, all of them, which is they're clinically optimistically deluded. Mm. Right. They really passionately believe that their business idea is the best thing on, you know, on, on earth and the best thing since sliced bread and let no one get in the way. And what I try and do is warn them about some of the pitfalls, try and help them through through over some of the hurdles, 
and maybe a, a little bit of grey hair, some experience and some caution put, put alongside that incredible passion and enthusiasm can be a better combination. That's what I love doing. Mm. It's funny, I wrote on my notes for this interview, I, I wrote the, the pursuit of opportunity versus the avoidance of risk being probably the, the two parts of, of, of the world that you're having to deal with on a day-by-day basis. That's true. That's true. But I mean, the book, thank you for mentioning that. I mean, that really came out of watching my own children grow up and, and and sort of how differently the youngest one was affected by technology from the older two because he's 17 and they're 22 and, and 20. So he's on different platforms. He, he is the one who really got into gaming. And I started wondering about how that affected the personality development of youngsters. And mm. so then we then we get to lockdown and my wife said to me, if you think you're sitting in the kitchen for the next three months, you've got another thing coming, you better find a project. Otherwise, we're going to get divorced. So so I thought, right, well, this is the moment I'm going to write the book. You could have taken that box sets, Bob. I mean, I mean there's... <laughs> <laughs> then I panicked because I wrote down my chapter headings, Googled them uh, to discover that someone had written an entire book on every chapter I was about to write. So I thought, oh, God, I'm actually not going to say anything new. So then I decided I better read all the books. So I read 35 books. Uh, and in the course of that, probably 200 government reports. And then I, I knew I was onto something because 32 of the 35 books, so I'm briefly honest, were pretty dull, not very interesting. Most importantly, they were quite academic, a bit kind of analytical and had no solutions. And I wanted to write a book that was really positive about Generation Z. And whilst it analysed some of the pitfalls of technology, ended saying, you know, Generation Z is going to change the world and, mm. and for the better. But, and that's that's what the book is. But you've also in that book called for a radical and urgent reset of the relationship that we have with technology. So there is there is also jeopardy in this script, right, Bob, in terms of just sort of share that with us in terms of what, what should listeners take as being, I guess, the challenges um, before we get to the opportunities. So look, I mean, we are, I, I call uh, society distracted by a tsunami of uh, what we call weapons of mass distraction, right? I mean, whether it be our mobiles, our gaming consoles, our laptops, our earbuds, youngsters are now spending between, let's say, eight and 11 hours a day on screens of one form or another. Mm. And uh, they're not doing what they want to do. They're doing what the big techs want them to do and what the big tech platforms guide them to do, Okay. And we have to question whether that's a good thing for them and a good thing for society. Well, I mean, uh, just if I may come in, I mean, you know, a lot a lot of those technology founders that created Facebook, that created Google, that created that, they, they see themselves as 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 forces for good. I mean, do, do you think do you think they've turned out to be otherwise then in terms of the effect no, they've I, actually had on society? No. And I, I was very careful when writing the book, not uh, on two things. One, not to just be anti-technology, because partly because it'd be pointless. These technologies are completely ubiquitous in every aspect of our lives, whether it be information gathering, shopping, the way we run our diary, the way we politic, the way we engage in religion. So every single day, every single aspect of our day is is influenced by technology. It's pointless kind of being anti-technology. The question is, can it be uh, remolded so that it is doing something more than basically generating profit for the platforms that, that that provide us with these technologies? Can it be doing something good for society? That's the question. And, and there are some parallels with banking, if I may say. Mm. If you think back to you know that famous uh, speech uh, just after the crisis, when when someone posed the question about you know what what do banks do that's good for society? Uh, I, I think lots is the answer, but but. I think we, we've had a 10-year period when these companies have become enormous. They've become, many of them have become monopolies in their own niches. 
or monopsonies, I think. And I think regulation is struggling to catch up, but it needs to be rapidly. Which is why a lot of people say, you know, the horse has already bolted. I mean, if you, I mean, you'll have watched The Social Dilemma on, on Netflix, I'm sure, in terms of, you know, the fact that, you know, the business models require the addiction to continue for these monopolies to continue to, to thrive and, and dominate. I mean, when, when you have the more positive take about, appealing to the better nature of people to actually make those changes because they're a good thing to do. Do you feel confident that, that that's a message you can actually land? Well, you know, people spotted that the television had dangers. People spotted that uh, tobacco was dangerous. People spotted that alcohol was dangerous. And over time, laws have been brought in, for for example, to stop youngsters being able to do, we have the watershed on television. So to try and keep inappropriate age content away from our children, you know, before nine o'clock in the evening, we have laws where you have to ID yourself if you're buying alcohol. So I don't accept that it's too late to change. I think mm. what's happened is these industries have grown up very rapidly over this 10-year period. We are just seeing, I'm afraid, dramatic rises in problems with adolescent well-being, whether it be loneliness, unhappiness, anxiety, depression, or I'm afraid worse, self-harm and suicide. And the rates of those, what I call negative factors, have broadly doubled over that same 10-year period that these technologies have become ubiquitous in our lives. And it's not all the technology. I'm not claiming that for a second. And the academic evidence doesn't support that. But there has to be a link. And the question is, what can we do to improve that relationship? Right. Now, if there's a hero in the script for you, it's Gen Z. I mean, you, I, I was reading that you said a couple of years ago that, that you'd visit a, a Gen Z entrepreneur every business day. I mean, this right. is a, first of all, let's frame Gen Z. Let's talk about what, what makes them so interesting to you as, as the people that might just get it right. Okay, so the first thing is that I think our generation or my generation, I'm not sure whether I should put you in my generation. Happy to be there, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Is leaving this generation a pretty miserable set of cards, right? Whether it is the hangover from austerity from the global financial crisis, whether it's the sort of continuing global war on terror that's, that's existed for practically all their lives, whether it's a damaged planet or whether now it's COVID debt. I mean, if I was an 18 year old today, I'd be fairly hacked off Mm. with my parents' generation. I'd say, what have you done to us? And so when people turn around and describe them as the snowflake generation or the sensitive generation or, uh, or uh, frankly, are just commenting on their level of uh, unhappiness and depression, I don't think we should be particularly surprised uh, given mm. the set of cards. So the question is, how are they going to deal with that? And what I find is that this generation is incredibly independently minded. They recognize these societal problems. They have a very strong sense that they, as a generation that's arriving now in charge, is going to have to change the world pretty dramatically. I mean, you see that obviously the you know in the climate change world that's probably the most obvious uh, illustration of it but i think uh, in practically every aspect of our lives they're very socially conscious and they intend to make change i would have thought that that is a view that might well be seen as quite revolutionary amongst some of your peer group i mean i, I certainly had you know a recent guest was was nigel wilson the legal and general um chief exec and he, and he he, he said similar things in terms of the responsibility of this generation of leaders to make you know a good pathway for the next. But that doesn't seem to me to represent a status quo, certainly not yet in terms of the broader establishment and its understanding of the challenges that emerging generations face. I mean, what needs to change for more people to get it, Bob? 
Well, so I think very interestingly, I've watched the development of what we used to call corporate social responsibility kind of over the last 30 years. As you know, one of the things I did was I was deputy chairman of business and community for 10 years. And during that period, you know, companies started to realize that simply making a profit wasn't good enough. You, you had to do something to serve society in some way or another. And, you know, it started with relatively low level activities that you could quote in your annual report and accounts and what I would call, you know, CSR washing. So sort of created the image that we're doing something good and putting something back when really you're playing lip service. But over that 10 years that I was a business community, more and more companies actually woke up to the fact that they, they were unsustainable if they didn't mean it. And, and if they didn't do something quite substantial. Now, I think we've seen over the last 10 years an absolute revolution towards this concept of purpose. But a company has to have a purpose, which is not simply paying dividends to its shareholders. It is servicing all its stakeholders, whether it's its supply chain, its employees, obviously its shareholders, its customers. And if it doesn't have some greater purpose than simply making profits and paying dividends to shareholders, it isn't going to be sustainable. And Generation Z won't hack it. That's well, sure. I mean, I mean, I mean and they certainly aren't hacking it. I mean, you know, we're talking at a time where where Greta Thunberg, is, the the uh, environmental campaigner, has has described Britain as as a um, as a climate villain. That actually, you know, there's lots of fine sounding words, but when you actually look at the actions, they're not good enough. I mean, you're pointing towards a change, but a lot of people will say, but that change is slow at a time when we need to get fast. So I think there are some people around pushing it. So I think BlackRock uh, and Fink, you know, deserve some credit here. As you know, he's been writing. Larry Fink, annual- chief executive of BlackRock, yeah. Yeah, has been writing his annual letter to to listed companies around the world that they invest in, uh, making this point about purpose now for several years. And each letter gets stronger and stronger. And the last one was pretty brutal. I mean, he's making exactly that point is, you know, look, some of you have woken up to this. Some of you are really embracing it. But some of you are still dozing at the tiller. Mm. And Generation Z will neither want to work for your company uh, nor will they buy your products. So uh, then we won't we won't want to invest in you. So you really have to wake up and move faster. Now I, I've had um, an interview with with an academic that described COVID as obviously a global tragedy, but also delivering what she described as a brutal gift or a series of brutal gifts in terms of focusing the minds of people on some of the bigger issues in the in the world or some of the big issues of the world's to-do list, of which obviously climate change sits at the heart of that. I mean, do you get a sense that COVID has changed the city in any way in terms of the mindsets that are going back into the square mile that are looking at the future that are on, you know, I guess many of the panels that we'll see at COP26. Um, do you get a sense that there is that change in in mood and that change in action? Funny enough, I, d- I don't think COVID has had that impact on the city's attitude to purpose. I think it was growing, and I know it was because we were leaving, leading a sort of task force looking at it. It was growing strongly before COVID. I think what COVID has done is acceler- accelerated di- digitization in banking. So many people who'd never used their, on their mobile app um, because they couldn't go to a branch, suddenly started using digital banking. And that's good. So cash transactions are now down below 70% of all, of all transactions in the UK. Mm-hmm. So I think I think what COVID did was accelerate some trends that were happening anyway. But when it comes to purpose, I think the city had got there. And I think what, it, what, what COVID did do is one thing. I think it helpfully actually changed the perception amongst the public of the finance industry in a more positive way. Mm. So if you think about the global financial crisis, which, you know, in which the banks were seen as, as the villains. This time around in this crisis, I mean, one can never have a good crisis, but I think the financial services industry had a helpful crisis from the, from the public's point of view in the sense that we rapidly put in place these business support schemes. 
we very rapidly, and I'm literally talking about, you know, in a matter of days, gave people interest rate holidays on their mortgages, on their car loans, on their credit cards. And all of that was implemented through IT systems incredibly rapidly. It worked very well. And okay, right, right at the beginning, there were a few teething problems with Bibbles and Siebels, but they were ironed out, you know, incredibly quickly. So I think the public perception actually is that the banks helped the economy during that period, which is, of course, what we, what we should be doing. And that, that I think, will lead to a reinforcement of this sense of purpose in the financial services industry, which I think is a good thing. But I've, I've mentioned Nigel Wilson, but you could add people like Alison Rose from that West to that list. This kind of much more a sense of the activist leader at the heart of this. It seems that actually attitudes to leadership and senses of responsibility. I mean, you know, you can't you can't pick up a paper now without ESG as the, you know, as as, as the number one issue that that the financial services industry is is trying to sort of make get its head around, make sense of. I mean, I, I would have thought this this is the sort of debate that makes you feel quite optimistic about where UK finance is, is, is going, isn't it? Uh, very optimistic. We we just did a major piece of work with the LSE actually called Financing a Just Transition. And it's I mean, when you think about it for more than two minutes, the statement of the blind and the obvious, but you, you can't have a transition uh, to net zero without the financial services sector being an absolute instrumental part of making that happen because we are financing the businesses that are are making that transition. And, and I think the other point is that is the leveling up agenda. So that's the reason we call it, by the way, a just transition, meaning not just a transition for London or a particular region, but a, but a, trans, a transition for the UK as a whole. So we look not just at the ways in which financial services organisations could make sure that we reinforce companies that are promoting ESG and discourage those that are not by not lending to them, but also that we do it right around the regions and across the country to to help the government with the uh, the level levelling up and building back better sort of objective. Now, you've worked with Boris Johnson when he when he was mayor, you've written a report about about or you wrote a report for, about London for him. And I guess the conclusion for that was that, that London was a world winner for many, many reasons. Of course, since then, we've had Brexit, which which the city was not looking forward to. We've had coronavirus, which nobody could have have foretold, I guess. I mean, in terms of where the mindset of the city sits right now in facing the future, how positive does it feel, do you you feel, when you look at it in terms of where it sits, having faced, I guess, some of the biggest challenges that any generation of financiers will have faced in in their lifetime? Look, I think that the short answer to that is robustly optimistic against the background of a couple of major longer term issues. OK, so so some people say, look, we've had Brexit and all these doom and gloom scenarios have not developed. See, it's all fine. We told you um, those people are wrong. There is more bad stuff to come. And let me just encapsulate a couple of key points. One is clearing and settlement, which at the moment we do a lot of clearing and settlement uh, in London for European products. And it is very clear that the European Commission has a medium term objective to get that clearing onto onto the continent. Uh, and no doubt, you know, they will achieve some of that in time. Some of it, I think, will end up some of that business related to that clearing will end up in New York, but it already has. But but so they have a medium term objective to bring clearing onto the continent. The second thing is what we call uh, delegated portfolio management. So today, We have asset managers in London taking decisions about the portfolios uh, owned by investors, uh, again, on the continent. And again, the commission, I think, has a medium term objective to make sure those portfolio managers sit in Frankfurt or Paris. So so those that say, look, we warned you there were going to be 90,000 job losses uh, and it hasn't happened. Sorry, some people warned you there were going to be 90,000 job losses. It hasn't happened. It's all fine. Are wrong because these things have yet to play out. This is a 10 year game, at least. Okay. 
Against that, I would say what I have learned, not partly from the book, partly from 25 years in the industry, partly from chairing UK finance, is this country is incredibly innovative. I mean, we are so good at thinking up new ways of doing things and of making money and of running businesses that I have absolutely no doubt. And I'm hearing this from those people who run Japanese banks in London, Chinese banks in London, Canadian banks in London. They're saying, look, we're, we're, we're irritated that you've done this to us because we used to have passporting and now we don't. But there are so many great things about London. Right, but, so just help us. Just help us make sure we can okay. stay here. So, so what I would say, Bob, is that that is exactly what I would have hoped the chair of UK finance would, would say, right, in terms of banging the drum for the city. But but as you will well know, cities have no divine right to success. They, they ebb and flow over time. There are great cities that become forgotten cities. What are the risks for, for, for a major global city like London right now where – so many things seem to be being reset, reinvented, rethought through in terms of the way the world might work. I guess the question is, what keeps London relevant? So, so it's worth going back to that report that I wrote for Boris, because what we did actually in that report was analyse all the factors that led to London being a global financial centre that won repeatedly over decades and decades and centuries. Uh, and the answer is, it, I think we identified about 40 factors. There's some happily that the Brexit don't affect, like the fact we speak English, that we're in the middle of the global time zone, you know, those kind of things. And, and, and we have a great, very well-respected global uh, legal system that seemed to be fair. Uh, we have a taxation system that is seen to be to be fair and predictable. And the predictable bit I'll come back to in a minute. So I think there are some things that don't change because of Brexit and they're positive uh, and they're, they're good for London. OK, there are some other things where we need to really keep our eye on the ball. So, for example, you know, Brexit came maybe from a somewhat xenophobic anti-immigration stance. Mm. We, You know, ours is a highly mobile industry. We need to make sure we can get people in and out of London from America, from the continent, wherever it is there, or from Asia. And for that, we need visas and mobility of uh, of labour. So that's crucial. I think skills is the next one. We have, you know, if not the, amongst the top two or three uh, university sectors in the world. We have an amazing number of top universities in the UK. They will be losing funding because we're, because we're leaving Europe. And we need to reinvest in our universities and we need to make sure that they are still providing that bedrock of new talent that comes through to our industries. Infrastructure is the next one. So really important that we have the, the data infrastructure to support our industry and indeed every industry. Now, the government is actually, I think, deserves some credit around thinking about um, our data laws post-GDPR. What are we going to do? How are we going to develop that? Should we, for example, have EID? I, I believe personally we should have EID and we should lead the world in creating global EID standards. It's a very natural a way of creating soft, soft influence in the world. And I'm pushing the government very heavily to be more proactive about it, better coordinated, and to work with our industry to create a, an EID system. Right. But there's something else, I think, that winning cities have. They have swagger. They have, there's a certain style. There's a, a New York style. It was Churchill that said, attitude is the small thing that makes a very big difference. And something I was thinking about when I was reading my notes of this interview about the London story is that we're almost 10 years since the 2012 Olympics, when you could say without exception that London felt good about itself. It felt good about its place in the world. It felt good about its relevance to the world. Do you think that you can still say that here we are 10 years later in terms of what is without question a, a much more challenging picture for London economically and socially and 
I guess, culturally as well, in terms of its place, not only in the UK, but its place in this uncertain and changing world? I do, actually. Yes. I, I, I want to come back to your word swagger in a minute, because that's a very un-Gen Z uh, kind of thing. I'll come back to that in a minute. So I, I do think you can. Yes, I think there are many great things about and when I talk about the city, I'm not talking about London. I'm talking about financial services across the UK in the widest sense. So I'm including the great centres of the north, uh, you know, Leeds, Manchester, Birmingham and Edinburgh, where there's very strong asset management presence, insurance, you know, and, and in Northern Ireland. So so it is very important we don't think about London, we think about the industry in its widest context. But I do think you can say that. And the fact of the matter is, if you look at our market shares in some of the major financial products of the world, we still uh, are either one or two, we're either one or two with New York. Mm. And I, I actually don't see that changing over time. We may le- lose some European products for the two reasons that I highlighted earlier. But just let me pick up on swagger. So I think there's a fine line, isn't there, between confidence and arrogance. And Gen Z don't, wouldn't like swagger. Right. What, they would, what they would like to see is facts supporting success, uh, which leads to confidence but in the future. I was going to say, I, mean, I think they'd like to see confidence. But, but you know, yeah. if, if you would say, I mean, just to, just to defend the phrase for a minute, I mean, if you were to talk about the quintessential New Yorker, if you were to talk about, you know, that you would get a sense of energy, you would get a sense of something that makes that place quite quintessentially what it is and i suppose you know you often talk about the capital mentality you know new york's got a capital mentality and it's not even a capital city you know is that is that there's something about the the place perhaps it's the the sheer size of it the sheer relevance of it but they they are power centers of which london of course is a power center itself and of course presumably wants to maintain its position as a european yeah, but I, I I hear what you're saying, but I do think there is a massive difference between US culture and, and British culture. Mm. And I think do you think the, our culture is better, Bob? I think we and have. Like Gavin Williamson said that, the education secretary, didn't he? But look where he is these days. <laughs> I think, look, I think we're two quite different nations. And whatever that's expression about, you know, two great nations divided by a common language. I, I think we are quite different in our culture. And I think there is more of a swagger in New York. That probably is the more appropriate word in New York. I don't think that is the British way, actually. Mm. I think we're a, little, we're a little more understated and quietly confident because we have great market shares and great businesses and we have huge innovation. Right. Well, I was going to say, well, huge innovation. So let's take this to another area, passion area for you, which is fintech, right? Which which definitely does look West when it looks to Silicon Valley and it looks at the rise of tech and it looks as its its power to disrupt. I mean, not that I want to turn this into the swagger interview, but that is a sector that has raised four and a half billion in 2020. I mean, this is one of the most confident parts of the UK economy, isn't it? It's fantastic. And but we can't, as you you know, are basically asking me, we can't sit on our laurels and assume it's going to ever be like that. And that's really the point. So the Khalifa review, Ron Khalifa's report that Mm -hmm. was just published that the Chancellor has basically undertaken to implement most of, is all about making sure that we don't sit on our laurels. Uh, We have, as you rightly pointed out, attracted more money into fintech investment in the UK than anywhere else in the world, even in the last 12 months. And that's fantastic. But we need that to continue for the next five to 10 years. We need to do things like an annual benchmarking. So what I've told the government is, look, it's all right to do a report. And Khalifa's report is excellent. It's a very good piece of work. But actually, what we need to do is once a year, let's look at what's being offered in Stockholm, in Frankfurt, in Amsterdam, in Paris, in Lisbon. And let's compare it to what we offer in the UK in terms of tax incentives, free office space, mentoring, our university system supporting our businesses, tax incentives for entrepreneurs and raising money under the SEI system. Let's see where we stack up and make sure that on a continuum basis, we're in the top quartile of Europe so that when people think about, is it Amsterdam or is it London or is it, or is it Dublin? 
it's not too hard a choice to come to London. That's crucial. I'm just sort of, we're, we're almost out of time, but I'm thinking about in, in your life. I mean, you've had some some big chapter headings to to address, and I suppose no more so than being on the front line of the financial crash when you were chair of Merrill Lynch and on, on the board of the Bank of England. I mean, to what how formative was that for you? And, and how did it change you in terms of how you see the world today, perhaps to how you saw the world just immediately prior to that? Can I, can I tell you one quick story before we get to the Bank of England, because it's sort of uh, it goes back to your very first question about how did we get here. So when I was 16 at school, I was in a young enterprise company and that company won the national competition. When I was 19 at university, um, I persuaded my employer to sponsor a young enterprise company. So I now at 19 was the mentor, haha, helping some 16 year olds who amazingly also won the national competition. And on the way back from that competition, they said to me, look, Bob, you've had this experience. We've had this experience. How do we get one of these young enterprise companies in every school in the UK. Uh, I said, easy, we write to the prime minister. So they fell about laughing and said, look, you're 19, we're 16. Pointless writing to the prime minister. I said, no, let's do it. So I wrote to the prime minister and Mrs. Thatcher replied uh, the day after, said, come and see me next week and bring me a presentation. So we did. And at the end of the presentation, she said, I agree with you. There should be one of these in every school. She then whisked us next door, where unbeknownst to me, she'd organised the chairman of the stock exchange, the chairman of a bank, the chairman of Lloyd's Market, a load of pale male and stale 50-year-old men. She basically wagged her finger at them and said, these boys are brilliant. They've got a great scheme. Make sure there's one of these in every school in the UK by the end of next year. And then swept off. And the guy, That was a pretty formative experience. <laughs> well, it gets better. So one of the guys was the chairman of a bank. And he came over to me and he said, right. He said, you're obviously trouble. You better come and see me. So we went off and got in his chauffeur-driven car and went to his office. And I remember sitting there overlooking St. Paul's, looking at the depth of the Shag Park carpet and the beautiful mahogany desk and the view of St. Paul's and thinking, chairman of a bank, that's what I'm going to do. And that is a true story. 19 years later, my office did overlook St. Paul's uh, and I was the chairman of a bank. Now, that, that takes us to the Bank of England. So that, I thought, was going to be one of the most interesting experiences of my life. And it was, but in a way, not for the reasons I thought, because, of course, we were rapidly into the crisis for which no one was really prepared. And it was a combination of... Honestly... I mean, and, and just just to stop you there for a minute, Bob, yeah. I mean, so obviously you've had this accelerated career, you know, you pitched to the prime minister as a teenager, you know, you're, you're sitting as, as chair of, of, a, of a major financial services institution and advising the Bank of England. That's, that's a pretty good career so far. The moment it starts to go wrong, the moment that you realise that you're at the heart of something that is enormous and something that no one has got any control over. Tell us, how did it feel to be, to be right at the centre of, of that in terms of your own personal response to it, your own emotional response to it, I guess? Oh, I mean, massive. So I didn't sleep for nine months. I felt sick for most of that nine months. I actually still have a hole in my bedroom ceiling where there was a particularly good development one day that, that meant we could get around a particular problem with the financial crisis. And I was so excited, I hit the ceiling with my hand and I've left the hole there in the ceiling just as a reminder of you know, what might have been, as it were. It was horrendous. And actually, when I, when I left banking shortly thereafter, I, I went away for a few months. I had to detox because mm. the, the stress that built up over those nine months was like nothing else I've ever experienced. But it was a very interesting experience and one that I, I'm not going to repeat it, but it's one that I'm glad I had. Mm. I mean, because I'm a, a lot of people that were sitting as captains of the universe, I guess, at that time had to suddenly face 
the humility of of massive global failure and you know n- not not for a minute suggesting that was you but, but but presumably it had an effect in terms of coming out of the other side in terms of the world that you saw did it make you a more mellow character do you think in terms of the way that you know I was just wondering about is there a dotted line from today's Bob to that Bob in terms of the things that you've gone on to to be clearly very very interested in well, so it, it certainly coincided with me turning 50. And so I think it probably accelerated my midlife crisis <laughs> shortly thereafter. But I and, I and I've always been a very emotional person. So I don't actually think it did do that. It's actually made me more decisive in the face of adversity. When I see something that is wrong, I'm, I think, quicker to deal with it than I would previously have been. And it also gives you a very different perception of what is a real problem. So I spend my life with entrepreneurs whose companies are always about to run out of money. And I, and I don't mean this. And of course, for that, that, that is their whole life. Their whole current life is about to blow up in smoke next Thursday because we can't meet the payroll. And I, and I never say this to them, but I quietly think to myself, well, I had, you know, 9,000 employees in 23 countries with half a trillion dollars of gross assets. So just think about what a 1% movement in the market stand would meant to a half a trillion dollars of assets. And you're living that on a daily basis, worrying whether you can actually, whether Merrill Lynch can pay its bills next week. And you know what? I think we're going to, I think we're going to find a way of getting to pay the payroll next Thursday. You sort of have a, a different threshold for when is something a real crisis. Um, right. So I don't mean that in any demeaning way, but it, but it is quite helpful when you're mentoring entrepreneurs. Right. And my last question to you, I'm going to wave a magic wand and I'm going to take you back to that teenager that's just about to walk through the world famous um, door of 10 Downing Street. And I'm going to give you a chance to give him some advice based on what you know now. What would you, what would you advise yourself at that age given what you now know? That's a, such a hard question. Can I, can I slightly veer off to a different point? <laughs> You've been hanging Which out with too many politicians, Bob. <laughs> sort of answering your question. But also when, I, when I left the bank, I read a great book, which, which anybody on this, this, this podcast who's in their 50s should read. And it's called Winning in the Second Half. And the concept is this. It, there was a woman who ran a company in America, Fortune 100 company. She got taken over. She suddenly had nothing to do. So she went to the doctor, had a full checkup. And the doctor said, do you want the good news or the bad news? And she said, oh, God, have I got cancer or something? And he said, no, no. He said, you're 100% healthy. That's the good news. He said, the bad news is you're going to live to your 95. And I gather you're unemployed. What are you going to do? Yeah, you're 50. And she said, oh, that's easy. I'm going to play golf, get a couple of non-execs and wind down. He said, well, you're mad. And she said, sorry. He said, well, you're going to live 45 years. So you need to work another 25 years. You've only worked 25 years so far. Stop thinking wind down. Start thinking second half. And that, to me, was such a revelatory way of thinking. And so I suddenly, at 51, I thought, right, I've got 25 years to work. What am I going to do that's going to make life fun and happy and stress-free? And so I've tried to build a portfolio of activities that deliver on at least, you know, part of that mission. Well, listen, I, I, granted, you totally didn't answer my question about the 19-year-old, but you certainly did answer the one about the 50-year-old. Bob Wigley, thank you very much for joining me on Changemakers. Great pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?